Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all Welcome to the dog show with Julie Forbes. Happy New Year, Eric. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. What a great year to take your dog for a walk, huh? <laughs> well, take some breaks in there yeah. <laughs> during the year, but yeah, yeah absolutely beautiful day uh, starting off the new year here in mm-hmm. Seattle. Chilly though, so you probably want to put some gloves on and maybe yeah. uh, even a doggy sweater, depending on the breed, of course. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know. I have my interview with Alexander Horowitz, which was a few weeks ago about her new book, Being a Dog, has really stuck with me quite a bit. And um, one of the things that we had talked about was how, you know, her focus is really on the dog's sense of smell and um, getting to know dogs and their sense of smell, given that it's their primary sense. And we were talking about um, maybe sometimes we should substitute that and say what a great day to take your dog out and stand because of the whole like letting them sniff Mm -hmm. um idea and um and people ask me that a lot in my work with dog training and behavior about you know should I let you know am I supposed to have them in a really kind of rigid walk or is it okay to let them sniff or how long should I let them, you know, people oftentimes have questions about that and what is sort of right and wrong and all that kind of stuff. And and um, I think it's nice to let them, to kind of have times where you let them just kind of be and smell and check things out and where you're not in such a rush to... Give them a chance to drive every so often? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, let them get that stimulation because... The walk part of it is, you know, they're physically moving, but what dogs need is, you know, to be fulfilled and tired is stimulation, which is not just physical. I mean, if you think of our lives, we 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 have lots of stimulation that exhausts us that in a lot of cases is not physical at all. It's mental. I always think what a shame it is that dogs can't really understand TV shows or read books or something because <laughs> I, I just feel bad sometimes when the dog is left at home for hours that they, they might be just getting bored, you know. just Yeah, they don't have um, – there's not a lot out there that they can just sort of do on their own, you know. Um, but you one could also argue that, you know, television isn't healthy for people either. But I I know your point. (laughs) True, true. If it's like a documentary or some educational, although our black lab watches television, and I've I've had people tell me, I mean, you know, she she sees if there's an animal and any sort of animal type thing, she'll bark at it, and she knows now that she's not supposed to, so she'll sort of like look away and try you know try not to look but she actually does watch i mean she, you'll see her there she's actually the television's on and she's watching it and then if a f- commercial comes on or something and there's like a dog in it she'll hoo, hoo, you know what's that um but yeah i mean there's not it's like oh you know here's a bunch of books that you can read while i'm gone or here's some puzzles that you can do um and there are dog puzzles there's tons of them and i've talked about them on the show um you know in the past and i think i even 
did a part of a show recently about how to work with your dog um, in the context of doing these games and puzzles that are now available to us, um, you know, that weren't even really around 15 years ago when I was starting working with dog training and behavior. I think there was one brand and now there's a whole market category of, of uh, you know, games and puzzles, which is awesome. Um, we've also talked about nose work um, as a great way to um, give your dog some mental stimulation, specifically through their nose. It's scent detection training for fun. And you can do, you know, you know nose work classes are available all throughout the country. And uh, those are really fun, too. Um, but anyway... Alexander Horowitz and, uh, you know, her real depth of focus on the sense of smell and letting your dog, you know, get some stimulation that way. And to and then to also, if you need to keep moving, then you can also have a communication with your dog. The phrase I use is let's go. And that lets uh, lets them know that, you know, we need to keep moving now. But I think in general, it's it's good practice for us to slow down as a general statement. (laughs) Certainly with working with dogs, but it seems like mm. people and everything is just so fast, 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 faster, 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 you know, <laughs> doing five things at once. And When you've got an older dog, you, you certainly can't have that attitude. That's a very good point. They're they're yeah. only going to move as fast as, as they yeah. want to move. <laughs> or, you know, and that's such a good point because I, I noticed this. We have our old dog haven uh, final refuge dog Lois if you're not familiar with Old Dog Haven they're a really wonderful organization that was just on the Today Show featured on the oh fantastic National. good for them yeah um, they are this organization that gets old dogs out of shelters and, and rescues and into foster homes and forever homes and their their organization is really wonderful because they cover the cost of the the medical care of the dog um, so the organization pays the vet bills. So all you need to have is is the the home and heart and you know time and attention to care for the older dog. You don't necessarily need to have the financial means to cover the usually you know higher cost of vet expenses as dogs age. And um, so we have Lois, who's our old dog haven foster dog and a final refuge dog, and we've had her for two and a half years, and she's moving slower and slower. As time goes on, and and I notice I get a little, uh, you know, um, you know, feel like internally that I want to kind of speed her pace up a little bit, and I have to be mindful to be like, okay, just this is her walk and chill out. (laughs) Um, So let your dog sniff sometimes. And speaking of that, uh, a colleague of Alexander Horowitz, who I mentioned earlier, is Dr. Mark Beckoff. And you're going to hear my wonderful interview with him about his book, When Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. Enjoy my interview with Dr. Mark Beckoff. And now we're talking about why dogs hump and bees get depressed. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Beckoff. Thanks, Julie. Great to be here. And you're in Colorado, yes? I am in Boulder, Colorado, yep. With a lot of snow around you, it sounds like? Um, It's only about six inches, but Mm. it's about eight degrees and supposed to go sub-zero for the next five nights. Oh, boy. That's okay. It'll be sunny tomorrow, and the sun here is very warming. Yeah. Well, very nice. Um, Well, I've enjoyed what I've read so far. I'm about halfway through your book, and it was funny. I was, you know, reading through it and underlining and noting pages, and, and, uh, you know, it's a collection of essays about all sorts of different topics, 
um, a lot of those dog-related and some of them related to other animals. Um, And then you mentioned the D word, and I was like, oh, boy, we're going to start out with this one, (laughs) because you talk about dominance. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, (laughs) The D word. (laughs) So, and, you know, in my field with training and behavior, this is something that I am in conversation with a lot with people, um, with their, you know, about their dogs, and really clarifying for people, you know, what is it, what does it mean, how does it pertain to your dog, you know, what do you need to do? What do you not need to, to worry about regarding dominance? And you, you know, really address this as well. Um, so I'd love to just start off with this topic because it's a doozy in the world of of, uh, of dogs and understanding, you know, what makes dogs tick. There's a lot of different, um, a lot of different perspectives on it. And yours being one where you have you know, a lot of really scientific information to back up your opinions. So tell us a little bit about what you found out or what your views are about dogs and dominance. Sure. Well, um, it's a great place to start. Excuse me. It's been contentious. Um, You know, as an ethologist or, you know, student of animal behavior, there's no doubt, you know, that I and many other researchers have observed what we would call dominance behavior, you know, or dominance in other animals. But I think my, my reading of the way it's been used in, you know, people call it dog training. I like to call it dog teaching or dog learning. I think it's just been misunderstood and misused. And maybe in some ways the easiest way to say it is that animals can control the movements of other animals, and that would be a form of dominance. It doesn't always mean Fighting. It doesn't always mean, you know, aggression and submission. Um, dominance, you could see food dominance, and then you could see dominance, you know, with a stick. You know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Um, you can see situational dominance. You can see dominance that um, can change. Uh, it's called, you know, the residence effect. You can see a dog or another animal who's dominant on their own home range territory or at their home, but not when they're off their own turf. Mm-hmm. So the point that I'm trying to make, and, and, I, and I think it's a point that most ethologists, or if not all ethologists would make, is that dominance is a very complex topic, but it would be wrong as some people claim that dominance does not exist. It yeah. does exist, it's why wolf packs Along very well, if you will. It's it's why you know individuals know their place in the in a pack, and they do very well. Yeah, and you said a word that I say a lot to my clients in conversation, and really trying to, to really have them understand this in a way that's going to apply to their relationship with their dog, and and that's control. Mm-hmm. And that to me is what's important. Is do you have do you have control when you want it or do you have respect established? And I think respect is really a two-way street. If we want to establish that our dogs respect us, we also need to respect them in doing so. But the control factor is really key. And I think it's like a lot of times people, you know, because people read stuff, there's so much information out there. I mean, and then they end up just more confused afterwards. And it's like, well, you know, okay, well, we eat first, and I try to go through doorways first, and, you know, they sort of list off all of these things that they think is what really mean dominance to right. a dog. 
Right. And it's like, if you just have control when you want it, mostly, you don't need to worry about, it's not like your dog is watching and like, oh, you know, I ate first, I'm dominant, I'm in charge. Right. Like, <laughs> no, and, and you're right, and that's exactly right, that people just confuse it because cause the word dominance, is a, it's a loaded word mm-hmm. in, you know, the human literature. So I think what you just said is great, you know, like, I live in the mountains outside of Colorado and I've lived with dogs, I've wanted to make sure that they were safe, that they didn't, you know, go out, venture in different places because there were bears right. or cougars, yeah. a, an occasional car, car. So, you know, I might yell, Jethro, you know, um, no, don't go there. Um, you know, or whatever I would do, call him back and give him a treat. That's not a form of dominance. It's a form of, it's actually a form of love. I yeah. mean, I'm controlling his behavior because I don't want him confronting a, a bear or a cougar or a car. Yeah. And, and and to me, you know, it was really amazing, Julie, because when I fir- when I wrote my first article, and um, the first article appears in Why Dogs Hump, you know, that dominance is not a myth. I was actually astounded to see an article published that dominance is a myth mm-hmm. because it's not. So that was my actual first contact, and then I had a whole bunch of people because I do talk to um, people who work with dogs, you know, ask me to address it. So I was kind of incredulous that someone was arguing that dominance is not observed in wolves and there aren't alpha wolves with misquotations of um, David Meech, who's probably one of the world's leading wolf experts. I mean, of course they see dominance and of course they see alpha animals, but it's just not as simple or linear as people make it. Yeah, and that's a really great Um, lead. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, you know, it was a perfect lead into where I wanted to go with this, where, you know, in continuing talking about dominance, control, motivation, all of these things, that it's so important to not overgeneralize and to really, you know, look at each individual context and animal because everybody's different, just like people. So we're going to continue on with this conversation when we come back. We're talking with Dr. Mark Beckhoff, who's the author of his new book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Yeah, this is a story of famous dog. For the dog that chases this tail, we'll be busy. This is Julie Forbes. I'm excited to tell you about Farm Dog Naturals, a company that handcrafts herbal remedies for the all-natural dog. Quality and integrity are must-haves for anything that I recommend. Certified eco-friendly and cruelty-free, their products address issues like stress and anxiety, itching, hot spots, crusty noses, as well as pet urine, stains, and odor. Farm Dog Naturals is guaranteed, and I'm so happy with the results I'm seeing. Shipping is available worldwide from their website, farmdognaturals.com, or you can ask for them at a retailer near you. Again, that's farmdognaturals.com. 
This is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Northwest School of Animal Massage on Vashon Island, we cover the world of animals. This week, January 8th, it's Talk With Your Animals Sunday with gifted animal communicator, medium, and Reiki master Darcy Pariso. Darcy can help you talk with and learn about your animal friends or help you connect with animal or human loved ones on the other side. Plan to give us a call on Martha Norwalk's Animal World Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it, and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. And now back to the dog show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, and we're back with Dr. Mark Beckoff, author of his new book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. And we were talking in the last segment about um, dominance, and I was saying how I was going through the book and reading it and, you know, underlining things and, oh, that's interesting, and oh, we could talk about this and, you know, all these different topics that you reach and then I got to the part about dominance. I was like, okay, we're definitely starting with that one. Um, we were talking in the first segment about how really misunderstood this topic is and how disagreed on it really is in the community of, of people when we're talking about working with dogs or, you know, human-dog relationships. Um, so, and what I think the biggest thing was that, you know, really what, I'm interested in is that people have control when they want it. And like you said, I mean, there's some a lot of situations where that's a safety issue. Like if your dog is wandering off somewhere that they shouldn't go, you want to be able to communicate with them in a way that they understand and listen to, to, you know, not do this or don't do that or good, do that again. I loved that. I'd love to see that again. And to have them really understand that. Um, you know, is really important. But I think that the thing that people are afraid of is that when we say the word dominance, we think that we have to be like really jerky or militant with the dog or unpleasant or punishing. Right. You know, one thing I wanted to say, too, is that when people study wild animals where there are clear what we would call dominance relationships, there's a real um, benefit to solving any kind of social situation or, you know, any kind of situation where you want to look at relative social relationships as peacefully as possible because wild animals don't get veterinary care. And I don't mean that facetiously, you know. So that's why in the relatives of dogs, like, you know, wolves, 
all the other canids, you know, coyotes and foxes and jackals, for example, you see the evolution of these very complex and very clear threat displays and um, displays that show subordinate behavior and appeasement. And so, once again, it's not like, you know, wild animals are always beating the heck out of one another. Yeah. Dominance. And there was a very important theory years ago called attention structure. And this guy who's studying primates said that the way he looked at dominance was the individual who controlled the attention mm. of other animals. And there was actually, mm. I think it was an, un, I don't think it's been published, but years ago it was an unpublished study of this phenomenon in wool and captive wolves, supporting once again that, you know, if you pay it more attention to me, you're always worried about where I am, or not even worried, but you just want to know I'm dominating your attention. So, like I said, you know, the interesting bridge here is to the title "Why Dogs Hump." It's the same. <laughs> it's the same explanation for humping. There's so many different explanations that depend on context. Yeah. And that's why, actually, I wrote the article with one of my colleagues, and that's why I loved it for the title of the book, because people, you know, some people are shy and they don't like to talk about why dogs hump or mount, and it's the same argument. It's contextual. Mm -hmm. You've got to look at not only the where it occurs, but, you know, who the dogs are, and so it just explains something that I'm always interested in in decades of studying animal behavior is that we often don't really know the cause of different behavior patterns and yeah. we need to be careful about saying A causes B or B causes right. C. Yeah, I sometimes have people ask me about, you know, oh, my dog, um, you know, has a barking problem or my dog's barking, what does it mean? It's like, well, it'd be like asking someone like, you know, this person's talking to me, what does it what does it mean that they're talking to me? It's like, well, what, exactly. what are they saying? You know, what's what's right. the context? What you know, what's going on? What's the tone? There's all sorts of different things. Right, and I, think, and I mean, you know, the study of animal behavior. You know, there's a move to really understanding that. You know, a lot of times animals are behaving in very complex ways, yeah. and the reasons they're doing some certain things are not so straightforward. Yeah. And so it just, once again, using, say, dominance and using humping, it's just making clear that we really often don't know something, and we have to be very careful about generalizing. And one of the things, I mean, I know you and your listeners know better than I do from experience, but I've lived with many different dogs and had many different dogs as friends. They all vary. They all have individual yeah. personalities, and what applied to my dog, Jethro, was almost a 180 from what applied to my dog, Moses. Yeah. So to say dogs do this or coyotes do this, it just it's just too simple yeah. and stuff. And, that, you know, it's another reason I, I compiled these essays was to show that there's some pretty amazing things going on there in, um, out there in the animal kingdom. One of the things that I enjoy so much about my line of work is how many dogs I've gotten to really know very well in mm -hmm. in working with them. Either trying to resolve uh, behavioral challenges that they might have and working with their humans on that, or if it's just someone's got a new puppy or they've just adopted adopted a dog and they just want to get some, you know, basic education going, is that all dogs vary as much 
from each other as people do from each other. Everybody's an individual. There's so many different personalities and temperaments and, and, you know, there's a genetic component for sure and different drives, but it's just amazing. The personality differences in these dogs is, is really, I liken it to my feel for meeting different people. Some, you know, some like, you know, and even with our, with my own dogs, I mean, we have two cattle dogs, a lab and a dachshund, and Mm -hmm. they are all very different. (laughs) And actually two of them uh, the female dachshund and the male cattle dog are both humpers, and I know that they're doing it for different reasons because it's yes. different contexts, and one of them's humping a dog and the other one's humping a bed. So, yeah, um, but yeah, the <clears throat> to not overgeneralize and to recognize, you know, not only as you talk a lot about in your work and in your uh, book before this, the emotional lives of animals, but that you know, dogs do not only feel emotions, but they're very much individuals with personalities and, and feelings. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you talk about is is um, dogs having... You know, I often say dogs don't get enough credit all the time. <laughs> I say it all the time. <laughs> they don't get enough credit mm-hmm. with how with their awareness and level of consciousness, and they know what's going on, and they have feelings about it, and I don't know what the thoughts look like because they're not verbal. But um, you said dogs have theory of mind... And what do you mean by that? Well, a theory of mind is an idea that, um, well, I mean, it would apply to human animals, that individuals basically know what another individual is thinking or feeling, and then they may make some predictions of, you know, what an individual will do in a certain situation. Mm. And and so, you know, at, at first it was thought that, you know, only humans, I can, only I, you know, a human or, you know, you know, could know what I'm thinking or feeling or what you're thinking or feeling. And there's been some studies done in captivity where humans will, you know, hide food or they'll do something absent an animal knowing and they'll look at the choices animals make in terms of whether they will go to a can where there is food or not food, you know, trying to answer the questions of do animals know what the humans know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very difficult in captivity to demonstrate this theory of mind. And so some people, based on these captive studies, have said, well, you know, the only animals who have a theory of mind are human animals. My argument in the book and elsewhere is that it's it's unlikely that we're the only animals that have a theory of mind. And I was looking at um, an example, say, of pack-living wolves. They spend a lot of time just hanging out and resting and learning who other animals are, just like dogs do at a dog park, and just like we do. And, you know, if I knew you well, I would know what your most likely response would be, say, in a certain situation. And I would just, I would make the assumption, oh my goodness, this is happening, Julie is most likely to do X, Y, or Z, and it's a very efficient way of interacting. And you could apply that same, you know, patterning to wolves, for example, or other pack-living animals, and you'll see this amazing coordination, which, in my opinion, some people disagree, but in my opinion, would be very difficult to explain if these animals didn't have some idea what was going on in another animal's head. Yeah. And so, once again, do we know this for certain? No. Does it make sense to postulate that? Yes. And I think in the future we will discover that with really good field research. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting um, 
that there's a lot of sort of theories and a lot of ideas that people who just have, you know have lived with dogs all their lives would say of course <laughs> right of course they do <laughs> you know i don't personally don't need uh, a scientific study to to prove to me what i feel that i know to be true in my mind and in my heart but but yet you know that's sort of just the way the way of the world with science and 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 really understanding and and recreating and and doing these studies to to really prove this or that and i thought that was so interesting i really got a glimpse into the culture of scientists at the sparks conference yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people embellish animals, including dogs. And, you know, I'm just very open about saying a lot of very popular, best-selling books on dogs have a lot of myths in them yeah. in order to make these animals, you know, uh, beings who they're not. But, you know, sometimes dogs make stupid choices just as humans make stupid choices. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing to recognize that. So that's, you know, another reason I really wrote the book was to say, look, you know, there's lots of surprises out there. Non-human animals, including dogs and their relatives, do very amazing things. And sometimes we think that they should be able to do something that they just can't do. Yeah. And so I think we really need a corrective. And I, and I think when we apply what we know to dog training or teaching or learning that's when we're going to get our best results. Like, you know, understanding the notion of dominance, understanding what a dog might know about what another dog might know. Yeah. I mean, these are very, these are, well, you know, these are fascinating topics. I mean, my goodness, I've been doing this forever. And I'm just so thrilled that every day my inbox on my email is filled with stories. And, you know, a lot of those stories and a lot of the studies form the basis for the um, essays that I write for Psychology Today. Yeah. Uh, we're going to switch gears just a little bit and talk about uh, some ideas that I've been thinking about around um, trips to the vet. And you wrote uh, some observations that you had with Jethro mm -hmm. um, going to the vet office and how he could sort of tell uh, what, what went on recently in this exam room versus that exam room and, mm -hmm. and his response to that. So... We'll get to that. We're talking with Dr. Mark Beckoff, who's the author of Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. So we've been talking uh, in the first half of the show about dominance. And um, if you've missed any part of this interview or any of our almost 250 episodes, you can find them all archived on our website, dogradioshow.com, and also on iTunes as a free podcast. And you can go back to this summer and find my first interview with uh, Dr. Mark Beckhoff about his book, uh, one of his other books, The Emotional Lives of Animals. So today we're talking about his newest book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed, and wanted to talk about um, one of the parts in your book. It's a compilation of essays, and you really cover a lot of ground. It's very, very interesting. Anyone who's a dog or animal enthusiast would just love this information and and sort of of a scientific mind especially um where you notice that when you took Jethro to the vet who is your your dog um and how long ago did he pass away a few years was it yeah he actually passed away about 11 years ago 11 years ago yeah but he's still here because I've got his ashes on uh. my fireplace covered by his favorite bandana oh <laughs> 
But, well, um, yeah, he passed away 11 years ago. Oh, yeah. wow. Yep. Well, he's uh lives on in all of your stories for yes, sure because you mentioned him a lot. Um so you you noticed you observed some you were obs- constantly observing his behavior probably, but uh when you took him to the vet and noticed his response where he could really smell basically the stress pheromones you said from animals that had been there earlier. Yeah, he loved going to the vet and he didn't have to go often and then when he was about oh, I don't know, 8 or so he went through a series of acupuncture treatments because he had um, he just had a bad left elbow, and you know he would jump out and you know even with the acupuncture treatments he didn't mind them. The veterinarian gave him some frozen food that he really enjoyed you know working at while she put the needles in him. And one day we got there, and he he went to the back of my um, uh, station wagon. I flipped the door open. And instead of jumping out and wagging his tail and sometimes, you know, going, woo-hoo, he stopped, his tail was tucked, his ears went back, he almost started sal- salivating. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't get out of the car. So I knew something was wrong. So I shut the car and I went in and I asked the veterinarian and the vet was great. She said, yeah, the dog who had just been in the room, um, the treatment room where we had pulled up had really freaked out and was really disturbed, was really, you know, just upset and had expelled some of the goop from his yeah. anal gland. Yeah. Just so picked it up, you know, you know, 50 meters from, away. Yeah. And stuff. Stuff. So, <laughs> you know, once again, I use that story just as an indication, just like when I taught animal behavior for decades, that animals live in very different sensory worlds. I mean, we know that, but we often forget that, that they hear better than us, they can smell better than us, they can see better than us, and some can't see as well as us. So we need to be very careful of thinking that what we like, you know, in the sort of smell or sound department is also what other animals like. Yeah, and in your in your presentation at the Sparks Conference this summer, it you were talking about empathy in rats and that they sort of saw it sounded like my memory is saying that it was almost by accident that they discovered this but that the rats were aware of what was going on to the rats near them and were impacted by it right um it was a formal study following up excuse me on a study showing empathy in mice and chickens and Mm. you know people can go into these studies you know, they want to, you know, good scientists keep an open mind about, and, you know, we'd hope an open heart about what they're doing. But, you know, there was some background that it wouldn't be so surprising whether rats would also display empathy um, for rats in need. And what was unique about this study, and I always say it kind of with a joke, as a joke, is that rats would help other rats in lieu of eating chocolate. Mm. And I always say that I'm pretty much a dark chocolate freak. I don't know if I would do that. <laughs> but, but you know, the bottom line message is, once again, we're learning about compassion and empathy in lots of different animals, not only human animals. And when you think about it, as a biologist, it's not surprising that you would see certain behavior patterns in social living animals. Yeah. You know, so once again, it's, yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I don't even know how to put it in words, all these fascinating things that we're discovering about other animals. Yeah. Well, the that part in the book 
made me think about or reminded me of something that I was just thinking about, you know, within the last week because our dogs went to the vet recently um, just for some routine um, procedures. But I was like, "Uh oh, wait a minute. Because I just hate, you know, I hate have them having to do really anything unpleasant. I'm so protective, but, right. um, you know, but they needed to get, you know, get some stuff done and, you know, whatever. So, but I was like, oh my gosh. And I remembered that, you know, your presentation as I was thinking about this, but I was like, I wonder if at a lot of vet offices where the dogs are held, if they can see what is happening to the other animals who if they can if they're within eyesight of of uh, surgeries or other procedures and they're like oh crap yeah. that's what I'm here for and that's going to happen to me like how uh, it seems like it actually could be considered a form of abuse to sub- subject them to you know I mean you wouldn't put children in a room and watch them watch another child in surgery let let alone most adults wouldn't be able to tolerate that and it's something that for me for how sensitive i am to this just occurred to me about vet offices right i i think what's really really important is also that it you know it could be odor or sound as well as sight right there was a situation at the denver zoo about a decade ago where an animal got knocked over, got basically died. They did the autopsy. It seemed like 50 or 100 meters away, mm. and that really set off the other animals who couldn't see mm-hmm. what was happening. And, you know, frankly, they may not know, but there was an odor, and, uh, you know, we call it a pheromone. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, <clears throat> yep, it's just very important, you know. Um, and, and plus, I think, you know, veterinarians you know, know this, they're always scrubbing their offices, they're always being, you know, I mean, every time I took taken a dog in, they'd be very careful which room to put Jethro, if they knew Jethro versus Moses versus Anuk versus Sky. I mean, you know, really, my vets were so wonderful knowing the personality of the dog and knowing that something that wouldn't bother Jethro would have bothered Moses 20 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, one of the things that you said um uh, a little off this topic, but that you wrote that I am constantly correcting the autocorrect on the computer when I write <laughs> when I write who, and then it's like nope, it's got to be that or you know it'll underline it in that red or something like that and let me know that it, that you know I wasn't using the proper um, word like for dogs for dogs who do this or that and the computer's like no 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 it's it's that or which. And that they're not identified as, as as beings in the same way, not valued in the same way. Right. It's the pronoun. Dogs mm-hmm. are, you know, we really want to refer to them as who, not that, or 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 witches, mm-hmm. um, because they're sentient beings and they have personalities and they're conscious, just like. I mean, I I have friends who refer to. They'll say. Oh, yeah, you know, Mark, that, you know, Mark who did this, you know, or Mark, you know, that guy. And in certain contexts, it's okay, but then they'll be talking about, you know, that person, or they'll say, you know, the person that went to the store. Mm-hmm. No, it's the person who went to the store. Mm-hmm. And, you know, linguists get into all these, you know, arguments, but once again, words inform thoughts and thoughts inform action and i think we just really be very careful about it 
Well, you talked about this too um, in in your book the, about how we'll we'll um, talk about animals in a way that makes them feel less personal, like um, dairy cows or um, livestock, or you know, as opposed to just calling them the animals that they are. Exactly, and that's why I get into this. Using the word, using the phrase who we eat or who we wear, not what we eat or what we wear. Yeah. And, you know, once again, I'm not doing it to be contentious. I had an email a couple of months ago, um, probably, what, months after, I, a year plus after I gave a talk in Vienna, Austria, where I just made that comment. And a woman wrote to me, and it took a little while to sink in. I don't mean that as a criticism. You know, we were asking for some change. And she said, you know, somebody never dawned on me what you were saying, and now six of us have been talking about it, and they've all become vegetarian. Now, mm. that's not necessarily my goal. I mean, it would be nice, but I just wanted them to think very clearly about the words they use to refer to non-human animal beings. Yeah. And, you know, we're you're such a, um advocate for just us really as humans thinking about and having some awareness and and consciousness about what we do to animals, how we treat animals, what we, you know, that that we're using them for this and that really quite recklessly and arrogantly and not taking into consideration their uh their experience, their feelings, what, you know, how is this Oh my gosh. I mean, imagine if, um, I mean, and this even happens, I mean, you know, certainly with dogs, but even more so with animals in this country that we eat, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's so, such a disconnect for, for the consumer about, you know, you, you're, if someone's at the grocery store, they see a, a piece of meat, you know, wrapped in plastic and they don't, they're not connected to what all happened in order for that to get there and how that happened and how was the animal treated if if someone's going to eat meat is it was it done in a way that is really honoring the animal's existence versus just really being c- completely disregarding it right because because a lot of the way animals are packaged and I and I mean it in many different ways packaged in food stores or packaged in stories or you know I've got a section in why dogs hump on how the media misrepresents mm-hmm. other animals you know when when there's a horrible crime or something you know humans do something bad they'll say oh they're acting like an animal or they'll only report on the very rare situation say when a dog you know attacks a human but they won't report on all the millions of wonderful interactions people have yeah and i really i i just i know you know some people go oh you know you're just this academic guy well you know I've spent a lot of years in academics, but I wrote, I write the books I write to get to non-academics, and I want the non-academics to realize that, once again, how we refer to other animals really informs how we treat them. And, of course, in terms of dog training or teaching or learning, I mean, it couldn't be more true. I watch people interact with other people, and then I watch them interact with, say, dogs, and I go, oh, wow, they interact in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they can be insulting. They can think that other people are just sort of machines, unfeeling machines. Yeah. And then they just 
generalize that to dogs. Yep. Yep. So. All right. Well, we're going to take a, our last break and come back with some final conversation with Dr. Mark Backoff. We're talking about his recent book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. It's an excellent book. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. When I walk through that door, baby, be polite. You gonna make me so. If you don't greet me right, don't you ever kiss me once, kiss me twice. Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country. But if you live in western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it, and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Working hard to put a smile on your face. Alternative Talk 1150. And now, back to the dog show with Julie Forbes. I'm really gonna freeze if you don't want me to be Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And we're back with Dr. Mark Beckoff about his most recent book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. Um, And in this last segment, I wanted to talk about the idea of uh, our tendency as people to make cross-species comparisons, one of the probably most common ones in the world of dogs, And I hear people repeat this to me all the time because they came across it somewhere in their reading that dogs are like toddlers. Dogs are like, you know, dogs are like uh, a two-year-old child is like kind of like a dog to, to try to understand what it's like to be a dog. And I can understand the motivation of of really we're just trying to trying to get in their heads and understand what it's like to be a dog. And but that can get us into trouble to not acknowledge them. One of the things that you talk about so much and one of the things you said was a big point in your book and your work is really seeing animals as the animals that they are. Dogs, that the dogs as dogs, the cats as cats, the cows as cows, 
you know, the frogs as frogs, and you say you say something about a card-carrying member of their own species. Right. I mean, you know, people like to say, well, chimpanzee, you know, chimpanzees do certain things that two-year-olds do, or, you know, two-year-olds do something that, you know, adult chimpanzees can't do. And as a biologist, I like to say that these these cross-species comparisons are interesting. They make for interesting press. Um, people use them to generate funds. But I always say that animals do what they need to do to be card-carrying members of their species. And so if someone says to me, and I, you know, I've read this, I think probably I've heard it at Sparks, that, you know, dogs do something and, you know, they're like two-year-old uh, humans. Well, they're not two-year-old humans. <laughs> Yeah. And neither are two-year-old humans, dogs or wolves or chimpanzees. Yeah. So I understand where the comparison's coming from, but I don't find it to be particularly compelling. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, yeah, I just don't. It gets back to that question about, you know, what do dogs and other animals sense? You know, like, you know, we were talking about the pheromones that Jethro sensed. It just, it, you know, because Jethro can sense pheromones that I couldn't. Is he smarter? You know? Yeah. You know, um, you know, because animals can do things, we can do things that other animals can't do. Are they dumber? You know, right. we can do things, they can do things we can't do. So I, I just as a biologist emphasize that when you take an evolutionary perspective on animal behavior, you really need to pay attention to who these animals are and what they need to do in their world, yeah. not our world. Right. And I think a great example of this and I wanted to just mention this because it's just an incredible story and I posted a link to this uh, YouTube video on our Facebook page if you just search for The Dog Show with Julie Forbes you'll find us on Facebook you know as we're talking about the comparison of dogs to two year old children um, there's the story about a German shepherd who I don't know was wandering loose or stray or something I don't know was just out on his own and came across this woman who had just been in this uh, horrible car accident and was sort of thrown from her car and uh, partially conscious and he and out of sight from the road. And he took her by her jacket and dragged her to the road. This dog. Um, and, I, you know, it's like, well, what <clears throat> there could be all sorts of arguments for what happened, but it seems like the most obvious thing would be that the dog was just trying to help the woman and and I don't know in this conversation I'm thinking well a two-year-old child wouldn't do that so um you know it's such a and I know I sent you that link and and you saw that um as well and it's just a real it's just so cool to see dogs you know really um functioning in the in that way and not only doing something so helpful to somebody and so sweet but that that you know that it really shows that if the dog was dragging, you know, it's like what what was going on in that dog's brain? Was that dog putting together sequences of, well, I need to do this so that? Right. I mean, you know, once again, we get back to different ideas people have <coughs> about what animals are thinking. Is that dog going, oh, my goodness, this woman is injured. I need to help her. Is he picking up, you know, some odor, you know, because we know that the dogs who are detecting diseases are using odors. So is that dog picking up an, a stress pheromone, a stress odor, 
that then clicks in that he needs to change the situation and do something. Yeah. We don't know. I mean, I would be the first person to say we don't know, but I would also say we should keep the door open because there's so many examples in other species of animals helping members of their own species. There's no reason to think they wouldn't generalize across species. Yeah. So I saw that video, I've seen other videos, and that was a very compelling video. The dog was motivated to do something. Um, you know, he could have just walked away. He could have, you know, bitten her. He right. could have done a million things, but he did something. And is it part of their nurturing nature? We don't know. Yeah. But I like to say, and I say in um, Why Dogs Hump a number of times, that the plural of anecdote is data. Yeah. And I really mean that. Yeah. If I get a hundred, you know, I published an article about magpies doing a um, grief ceremony. And after I published it, I'm still getting emails about um, birds doing what we might call funeral rituals. Mm. If I get, you know, a bunch of stories, it's about time that people study them. So... I could think of different situations where you could set up a nice experiment. It would be non-invasive. It would be enriching for a dog and see what they do in certain situations. And that'll give us an idea of what these animals are thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I, 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 I'm not an everything goes person. You know, I don't think that any explanation goes in these situations, but I think we need to be reasonable and keep the door open to what would be, you know, reasonable explanations. Yeah. And it's just such an interesting, I mean, you have such a great perspective, um, you know, just in closing that you, you know, just the whole topic of really our fascination with animals, our very complex, in some ways very beautiful, and in a lot of ways very troubled, um, coexistence on this planet with other animals um, and you say not calling animals animals but referring to them as other types of animals because we tend to forget that we are also animals yes. as humans yeah so we're talking with uh, dr. Mark Beckoff today if you've missed any part of this show you can find it archived on dogradioshow.com or on iTunes as a free podcast talking about his book why dogs hump and bees get depressed a great holiday gift for any dog lover or animal lover it just there's so much covered in this book it's just amazing so much we didn't get to so go ahead and get that book and read it and uh, we'll be back next wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m live thanks for listening to the dog show with julie forbes been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud. Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country. But if you live in western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. 
Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it.